So how would you describe yourself? What would you want people to know about Craig Watts? Oh, my gosh. You know, you just, it's, it's like asking me my own phone number. I don't call it enough to know. But here's what we want you to know about Craig. He's a North Carolina farmer who used to raise chickens for meat. A, re- a recovering poultry girl, that's correct. Craig's story begins a few decades ago. He had gone to business school, he worked and traveled for a bit, but by 1992, he was ready to return to his family's farm. Right at that moment was when the poultry companies were advertising in the newspaper to uh, raise their birds. They were just saying that, you know, we're coming to town and we're building a plant. I think the the phrase was, "We, we need some smart birds to raise our birds. It sounded pretty easy. He'd raise the chickens and the company would take them away to be slaughtered and sold. They had a representative for the company that came out and kind of gave us the, um, I, I call them the hooks, the here's, here's what to expect, positive cash flow from day one, buildings paid off in 10 years, we're going to be there to support you the whole way, and those are the three biggest lies I ever heard. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Future Perfect. I'm Sigal Samuel. This season, we're looking at how the meat we eat affects us all. Before we can eat that meat, someone has to raise it and bring it to slaughter. Last episode, we told you a bit about how that's done and why that's bad for animals. But today, we'll tell you how it can be bad for the people who raise those animals. People like Craig Watts. Our producer, Bird Pinkerton, reported this story. The problems with raising poultry did not start in 1992 when Craig Watts showed up on the scene. The problems actually started decades before that. So should I actually start with Once Upon a Time? I'm happy to. This is Leah Douglas. She is a staff writer for the Food and Environment Reporting Network. And I asked her to tell me a poultry production fairy tale. Okay. Once Upon a Time... The United States had a very distributed and uh, competitive marketplace for meat production. Just listen to these chickens. This was about a century ago, when chicken farming meant small farms. Now the chickens are coming out to the chicken yard for their breakfast of corn and grain. Farms with free-range birds. Farmer Brown let some hens sit on their eggs until they hatch. And there were farms all over the country growing mostly for their regional markets or for folks to just buy off the farm themselves. But then, in the 1950s and 60s, things started to change. That's when some chicken suppliers started buying up their competition. Suppliers like Tyson and Pilgrim's Pride and Purdue Farms. When you buy a Purdue chicken, you're not just buying a chicken. Over the years... Over the years, these suppliers were becoming recognizable names. And as they grew, they wanted more control. So instead of just buying chickens from farmers, they started giving farmers their own company chicks to raise. Since no one chicken was good enough for me, I had to develop my own. The Purdue bird. Tender meat, plump breast, well-turned legs. The farmers would raise those company chicks, and then the suppliers would take the grown chickens away to slaughter and sell. So farmers could still raise their own chickens if they wanted to, but they had fewer and fewer places to sell those chickens to. You should never just ask for a chicken. You should always insist on Purdue. Purdue, 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 Purdue. Fast forward a few decades to today, when most farmers are growing for five giant companies. Those companies control about 60% of all the processing, marketing, raising of chickens in the entire country. 
Pork and beef have followed the same model, which means you have a handful of companies that control most of the market, and then you have lots of individual farmers depending on those companies to make a living. This is the world that Craig walked into 30 years ago when he followed up on those Purdue ads. He was in his 20s, excited about what he thought would be a profitable business, and happy to be coming home to his family farm. So he signed up to be a smart bird who raised birds. But before he could raise those birds, he needed a place to keep them. So he built two giant poultry houses on his farm. I mean, they're massive. I mean, they're 40 feet wide and 500 feet long. That's basically like covering over half a football field and then filling it with very expensive ventilators and feeding equipment, all up to produce specific standards. It was expensive. Craig ended up taking out a $200,000 loan to cover it. And to pay all of that off, he was going to have to raise a lot of chickens. The company contracts were only for short cycles, since these chickens take five to six weeks to grow. But it seemed doable. As far as raising chickens, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. Craig would get a contract, then some guys from Purdue would drive up to his farm in a semi-truck, and they'd unload boxes and boxes of chicks. Each box has 100 birds in it. They'll physically grab each box and dump them out on the ground. And at that time, those chickens are probably only a few hours old, and yeah, they're, they're little and fuzzy and, and yellow. Oh, it sounds cute, although I'm sure it's uh, when you got a hundred of them running around, it's a little less adorable. <laughs> well, we, had, we would have 30,000 when it was all said and done. It was smelly and loud. You, you ever heard a, a chick chirping? Have you ever heard yeah. that sound? With times that times 30,000. <laughs> it's somewhere, somewhere the decibel level of a Van Halen concert. Have you ever actually been to a Van Halen concert? No, but I want to. For each flock, Craig would call sick chicks, repair equipment, pay fuel bills and costs, and then five or six weeks after they dropped off the chicks, the Purdue trucks would roll back in, pick up the birds, and carry them off for slaughter. I was happy to see them go. One thing, I was tired of looking at them, and the second thing, I knew I was going to get paid before long. But payment is where things got complicated. The birds would be trucked off to this giant scale where they would be weighed. And later, Craig would get a settlement sheet that told him that final weight. But I have no way of knowing when those birds cross those scales if that that weight is accurate. I have no way of knowing if that's even my chickens because I'm not sitting down there watching the trucks. You know, mistakes get made and there's no telling how many times it happens. And even if the weight was correct, the actual payment was a mysterious calculation. Because Craig wasn't told at the beginning of the process something clear and concrete, like, you will get paid X number of dollars for every pound of chicken. Chicken farmers who are in this type of arrangement are paid via something called the tournament system. This is not a fun tournament with banners and prizes. Basically, the company will take all the weights and look at how much grain the chickens ate and a couple of other factors. And then they rank the farmer's performance against all the other farmers in the area. So the highest ranked farmers make more and the lowest ranked farmers make less. 
And so if a specific chicken farmer gets a raise one pay period to the next, it's essentially coming out of the paycheck of another chicken farmer who is their neighbor. It's not as though there's a set wage that the farmers are paid that's steady paycheck to paycheck. It varies enormously depending on a set of factors such as the health of the chickens when they reach the processing plant uh, and a number of other factors that are pretty opaque to the farmer. In fact, completely opaque. You couldn't depend on it. It was, it was it varied so much and it was so like one check might be $8,000 less than the next. If you couldn't budget, it was a nightmare. And it's not like Craig could just work harder or somehow better to make sure he did well in the tournament because he didn't have control over really important things like the quality of the feed or the health of the chicks. There's a feed can they were dumped in and they had never moved. Sometimes his company gave him sick chicks. He sent me this one video he made where he's walking through his chicken house filming these tiny yellow bodies that almost seem to be disintegrating. Every one of those birds are dead. And meanwhile, Craig's debt just kept growing because the company would ask him to make upgrades. Say they wanted bigger windows for the barns. That sounds reasonable. It might even be better for animal welfare. The problem is that the structure that farmers have is already built. So apart from going in and carving apart the windows themselves, there's not much to do about making those adjustments frugally. But the first time I really had a major upgrade, it, it, it wound up being about $100,000. And the reason I, that I did that and spent that much money was they came out and told me if I didn't upgrade that I wouldn't get another flock of chickens. That's what they told me. What did you say to them? I didn't say anything. I mean, what, what's, what's, I mean, they don't care. They, it was either it was, it was my decision. Either either I upgrade and get chickens or don't upgrade and go to bankruptcy court. There, there was nothing to talk about, really. After they sort of paid off debts or costs of, like, fuel oil, et cetera, like, what, what could someone expect to make in a year? It's a hard question about after they've paid it off, to be honest. I, I don't know if I've ever really spoken to a farmer who's like successfully paid off their, you know, million dollar debt through poultry growing alone. One year I worked 12 months and made $3,000. I mean, $3,000 $3,000 after after all the bills were paid and everything was said and done, what I brought home was $3,000. How how do you live on $3,000? I had another business at the time. You know, I, I was supporting a chicken habit. To be clear, it's not all $3,000 salaries. One year, Craig remembers making $70,000. And Leah says growers typically make between eighteen dollars and $100,000 a year. But it's unpredictable and very frustrating. And the worst part is, there's no way to get a better deal. There was, let's see, one, two, three, four, four. The first six years, there was no other company here. Because of how much consolidation there's been in the meat industry over the past several decades, there might only be one or two processors that are really taking contracts in a specific region. So there's not a lot of competition in a market like that. And Craig found that even when a new company did come in, it was more of the same. Well, switching companies is like asking, would you rather drown or burn? Farmers in the system had a hard time pushing back because they felt trapped. They were hundreds of thousands or sometimes even millions of dollars in debt. That debt was growing because of expensive upgrades that they had to make in order to keep getting contracts. And they needed those contracts to then pay off the debts. 
It's called learned helplessness, I think is the psychological term. You just, you just take it. But after the break, farmers like Craig decided they didn't want to take it. They fought back. Welcome back. I want to take you to another family farm, this one in Iowa. Uh, What a magnificent background. It was a stop on Barack Obama's 2007 campaign trail. But this is not sort of the traditional town hall that we do sometime where I just sit there and try to show you how smart I am. Um, Instead, what I want to do is I really want to learn from you and hear about what are the main challenges that you see, not just here. So rural voters told him. On the campaign trail, Obama heard from lots of farmers who were frustrated by the power that giant companies had over their lives. And after he got elected, he decided he wanted to hear more. Leah Douglas again. He announced that the Justice Department and the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, were going to host a series of listening sessions around the country to hear from farmers and ranchers and rural communities about the issues they were having with corporate agriculture and particularly around meatpacking issues. These were sessions about monopoly power over poultry, but also beef and pork and other industries. And Obama wasn't just sending anyone to these listening sessions. He sent the attorney general and also the secretary of agriculture and some top DOJ people. So there were some heavy hitters there that we were getting to stand up and talk in front of, you know, people that, that had the power to do something. Craig heard about these listening sessions and he said, OK, great. Listen to me. So he pulled together a couple of talking points. I had one lady look over it and um, polish it up a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm a farmer. I'm not a reporter. When all of that was squared away, he and his wife drove down to Alabama, where the poultry listening session would take place. And even before the session started, people were excited but nervous. Craig remembers meeting up with some fellow farmers for lunch. And the thing is, we sat down and just were shooting the breeze. And um, there was a farmer there that was going to testify. I, I, I didn't know him. And his wife came and told him that the serviceman from the company called and asked where he was. And if he was down in Alabama, he better not talk. That farmer got up from the table, left. I never saw him again. Are you serious? No, I dropped dead. I mean, you got that leverage of debt and they can intimidate very easily. This was public and on the record, and uh, these are small towns where if you're sticking your neck out to talk out against the big employer in town, it can be a risky thing to do. But some farmers were willing to take the risk because these were people with the power to fix their problems, waiting to hear what they had to say. I want to welcome everyone to uh, this joint competition workshop, uh, an historic opportunity. It was kind of an auditorium, and you had the stage up there, and then I don't know how many seats. It was, it was a pretty big room, and it was, it was full. Farmers have the right to know if their markets are fair, competitive, and transparent. There were opening speeches and expert panels and conversations about whether or not meat companies were too big or too uncompetitive. And Craig was there for all of it. The whole thing, every panel, everything that they did. And at 1 p.m., 
Four hours after the workshop started, they opened the floor to the poultry growers. Our goal is to get as, as many folks who would like to provide a comment the ability to do so. Men and women were lined up behind the microphones on the right and left sides of the room. So I, why don't we go ahead and get started and we'll start on this side. They started talking. Your job is a job. My job is a job with a huge debt attached to it. Keeping a grower in constant debt gives the integrators assurance that these growers will have to continue to grow poultry for them. Craig took his turn. Contracts can be terminated at any time for any reason, and as growers, we have no recourse. Integrators routinely rewrite these so-called contracts to their benefit whenever they see fit. There's too much room there for manipulation, and there's no checks and balances whatsoever. After a couple of years operating in this manner, I came to the realization that I was never going to pay for these new houses. I thank God my husband and I have non-farm jobs. Without them, we could not afford paying out of our pocket to raise chickens. I could spend all my time thanking you for just being here. It's a great pleasure to have somebody to listen to us. And we're relying on you for that help to make sure that we can stay in business and do our jobs and do it right. It's our future. Thank you. It was a long and exhausting day. And at the end of it, Craig was too tired to even process it properly. But the next day... The next day was the day that was like, hey, okay, now we did something yesterday that we're, we're, this is going to make a difference. This is, this is it. I mean, we're, we've arrived. You know, I don't remember, you know, strutting around or jamming out to Van Halen or anything like that, but, the, but there was some peace of mind that came with it. What happens next? <sighs> so what happens next is that the Secretary of Agriculture announced that there would be a new set of regulations that would try to level this playing field and give producers a little bit more power in terms of how they related to corporate meat packers. These are rules that would have applied not just to chicken, but to pork and cattle as well. Those rules came out that summer in June or July sometime. And they were perfect. I mean, I couldn't have written them any better myself. And it would dealt with the way we pay the, the contracts and, uh, and all the things basically that we had fussed about for so many years that pretty much addressed it all. Oh, my God. That's so exciting. Problem solved. Yeah, totally. Problem solved. <laughs> Just kidding. The companies naturally didn't like it. So they asked for an extension of the comment period. And then they got their ducks together and got their checkbooks out and... Uh, Essentially, the, the rules got sort of watered down, which is not uncommon for a rulemaking process. The listening sessions first took place in 2010, and the rule was first announced later that year. But all this procedural stuff stretched out for years and years afterwards, with comment periods and rewrites and tweaks. And throughout this period, Craig and other farmers were taking trips to D.C. to speak to more lawmakers and make their case again. And finally, in 2016, the rules were finalized after some review process, and they were set to go into effect in October 2017. Well, what happens between the end of the Obama administration 2016 and October 2017? Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon, a TV personality, capping is a When the administration changed over, folks were sort of waiting with bated breath to see what was going to happen to this rulemaking that had consumed really the better part of a decade of the lives of many farmers and advocates who worked tirelessly on them. And then two days before they were set to go into a 
effect, they were killed by the Trump administration. I was frustrated and I was mad. It was just uh, we had put in so much work and burnt so much shoe leather. We'd been up on the hill in D.C., then it just didn't happen. So we really, after all that, there were, you know, pretty much right where we were. It was it, it, was, it was real frustrating. Which brings us to the present day. After years and years of work, chicken growers are still just as powerless, and the companies they work for are just as powerful. But there are two things that could give us hope here. The first is this. A bunch of players, including farmers, but also big grocery store chains, have actually started suing the meat companies. And they're making familiar arguments. The companies are too big, They're sharing too much information with each other. They're colluding to make the marketplace less less competitive for everyone else involved. Leah's been watching as the lawsuits have piled up and as all those lawsuits have gotten federal agencies interested again. So in June of last year, I broke the news that the DOJ has a grand jury investigation underway into poultry industry competition issues. And in June of this year, executives at several chicken companies were indicted as a part of this investigation. So maybe as a result of all this, the big five poultry companies will have a little less of a powerful hold on the market and their farmers. I think this is, you know, another optimistic, I don't know, maybe optimism is too strong a word, but it's a moment of potential opportunity, we can say. But Craig, Craig is done. Even before the rulemaking fell apart in 2017, he kind of gave up on the idea that chicken farming was going to change. He remembers one turning point specifically. It was on a work trip for his other job. I was sitting in a motel room, and I flipped the TV on, and it was Jim Perdue, and he was driving down the road, and he was in his truck, and he was talking about how his daddy told him to treat people right, and and, uh, they're transparent, and I'm sitting there thinking, uh? And uh, I think that wasn't the only thing, but I think that was like the the thing that kind of tipped me over. And Craig was bothered by this ad, not just because he felt like Purdue was pretending to treat people better than they did, but also because of how they were presenting the conditions for the animals. And so he walks in that chicken house and it's uh, it's brand new pine shavings, brand new equipment, spotless, everything spotless. The birds have an acre apiece to roam around in. That's bullcrap. He was so annoyed that he decided to let some animal welfare organizations come film in his barn and then did some interviews with media. The birds' breasts are so heavy, they can barely lift them off the excrement-riddled litter that heats like compost. All of this was in 2014. And after that, Craig's relationship with Purdue Farms went kind of sour. So he wanted to leave, but it took him two years to figure out how to work off enough of his debt. In 2016, he was finally able to quit. Except then he had to figure out what he was going to do next. And this is where our second glimmer of hope comes in. Craig reached out to the animal welfare organization that he had let come film in his barn. And so they're just tickled to death when they can get somebody out of animal agriculture. 30 years ago, do you think, would you have been surprised that you were working with a bunch of vegan people to figure out what you were going to do with your future? Uh, I wouldn't have thought that six years ago, (laughs) much less 30 years ago. But he really enjoyed talking to this woman named Leah Garces, who is different from our reporter, Leah Douglas. This Leah runs Mercy for Animals, which is a nonprofit. And she wasn't this bleeding heart who wanted Craig to bankrupt himself for the sake of animal welfare. 
I think that's what surprised me about her is, is, is how how good she was with the numbers, how quickly she grabbed like the economics of it. Uh, and, and just the, the fact that she didn't come in uh, judgmental. I think that was the biggest surprise. We didn't agree on everything, but we agreed on enough. Leah Garces suggested that Craig try to grow something else in his now abandoned chicken houses. It turns out that because they're insulated and dark, they're potentially great for growing mushrooms. People are looking for for meat alternatives. I, I'm not a vegan, but you know I, I, I like mushrooms, and so that that's kind of the thinking. It's 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 like um, the factory farming that I did is kind of like a dinosaur, and there's just no future in it. And I see a lot of future in the mushrooms. Craig is part of a pilot project. It's still really small right now, just a few farmers. And Craig isn't even talking about it to other farmers yet because he doesn't have any results to show them. But in a perfect world, I'd love to be the model. Maybe someday I'll be I'll be interviewing. You'll be like the Jim Perdue of, of mushrooms. Watch, watch it there now. Watch it. <laughs> <laughs> not a good not a good comparison. I might do Orville Redenbacher, maybe. <laughs> For this story, we reached out to Purdue Farms and the National Chicken Council. Andrea Staub sent this statement for Purdue. Quote, Over the past several years, the company has gone to great lengths to improve relationships with our farmers and the animals that are in their care. We are an industry leader in animal care and at the forefront of modern animal husbandry. When we started that initiative in 2016, we knew the importance of improving the relationships with our farmers. In fact, we have 17 farmer councils throughout the country that we meet with throughout the year. The National Chicken Council sent us a Q&A detailing its stance on chicken growers and the tournament system. We've linked to it in our show notes. What a fine day for a trip to the country. This episode was reported and produced by Bird Pinkerton and edited by Amy Drozdowska. Why is Betty so excited? Betty's excited because Jillian Weinberger Sr. produces this show and Jared Paul mixes it. And because our hosts are Dylan Matthews and me, Seagal Samuel. Oh, it's Mr. Miller's farm and house and big barn. Liliana Michelena fact-checked this episode, and Liz Nelson is the executive producer for Vox Podcasts. Mr. Miller's son, Dick, offers to show Betty around the farm. Viveka Morris from the Yale Law, Ethics, and Animals program showed us around so many factory farming issues and gave us great advice. Christopher Leonard also has an excellent book about this issue, which we've linked in the show notes. We have to be very quiet. Otherwise, we'll frighten the chickens. Music in this episode from APM, Chris Zabriskie, Poddington Bear, Van Halen, Little Glass Men, and Jared Paul. What's that noise? We're grateful to Lauren Katz for her social media work and to Kate Daly for all her help. Dick says the hen cackled because she just laid an egg. This podcast is made possible thanks to support from animal charity evaluators. They research and promote the most effective ways to help animals. The next morning, Betty has eggs for breakfast. And when Mother says that they're going to have fried chicken for dinner, Betty realizes how much we depend on Mr. Miller and all the other farmers who produce the food we eat every day.